Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team. Uh, my name is Liz, and I am glad to be here today. Pastor Tom is away for the weekend, and he loves the passage that we're talking about today. So I feel honored that he invited me to preach this morning. Um, but first, before we get to that passage, I'm curious if any of you saw in the news a dramatic rescue scene that happened um, a few weeks ago at a Florida beach. But um, there was, yeah, some people saw that. It was all over my newsfeed and Facebook for a few days. Um, so if you didn't see it, um, there was a story in the news about it was a, a group of people who formed a human chain that rescued swimmers caught in an ocean riptide um, of a Florida beach. Two boys were stuck in it, and then four adults from their family, and then four others who went to help them all got caught um, in a ferocious current offshore that they couldn't escape from. It was a very dire situation that was threatening to lead to real disaster and drowning. But some other beachgoers saw what was happening, and they stepped up to help. One of the beachgoers, her name was Jessica Simmons, and she was quoted as saying at that point when she saw what was happening, she said, these people are not drowning today. It's not happening. We are going to get them out. So this is what happened next. I'm reading from an article in Relevant Magazine about the incident. So on shore, a rescue operation mounted. Five people formed a human chain and began to venture out into the ocean. You can see it in the slide and with one person remaining on the beach to anchor them from getting caught in the current themselves. Five more people joined the first five, and then 10 more, and then, as the situation grew increasingly dire and serious, and the sun started to sink, dozens. With the human chain in place, Jessica and her husband, Derek, were able to swim out to the stranded family with boogie boards and surfboards to keep them afloat. The two are strong swimmers and were able to reach the children and then pass them down along the human chain back to shore. Then they rescued the others. All told, it took nearly an hour, but all 10 people were brought safely to the beach where there was welcome applause. So this is a pretty dramatic rescue story. Um, the news story um, linked to Jessica's Facebook post where she shared in more detail what happened, what went on um, during the rescue, and how hairy of a situation it was, and how close to drowning a few of the people really were. Some were like, just save the kids, I'm about to die, don't worry about me. Um, it was very serious. But her words, these people are not drowning today, ended up being very, very true. So we're continuing in our summer series, the summer of questions Jesus asked. If you remember, as he taught, we've been talking about, Jesus asked more than 300 questions that are recorded in the Gospels. Today we're looking at a question from a story from Mark's Gospel of a pretty, actually dramatic rescue story. Other questions that we've looked at in previous weeks have been shorter. Um, we started with, what are you looking for? Jesus asked. Then, why are you so afraid? Was the second week. After that, do you believe I can do this? Jesus asked. And then last week, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? But today's question that Jesus asks is a little bit of a longer one. So the question is, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. So some of the questions Jesus asked throughout the gospels, he let the disciples or other people he was interacting with answer. But today we're looking at a question that Jesus asked and answered himself. 
So I want to first um, look at this passage and read the passage to understand the larger context of this question. So turn with me to Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. It's actually on page 708 in your Bible, on, in the pews. On the 708, on the bulletin, it has the, um, the record of this story from Matthew's gospel, but we're going to look at it from Mark. So this is early on in Mark's gospel, chapter 2. Um, In chapter 1, before this, Mark has already told other healing stories of Jesus and shown how popular Jesus has already become. So the verse right before this chapter that we're going to pick up on um, says, Instead, the healed leper went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So we come to this rescue story in chapter 2 that actually serves to transition the narrative of this gospel to involve both healing stories of Jesus and also introduces the controversy of Jesus' ministry with the scribes and the religious leaders of his day. So let me read. Mark 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So just to give us some background and set the scene a bit for this passage, here we find Jesus doing what his purpose was, to preach the gospel to the people. A few verses earlier, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. But as we see, Jesus' reputation for healing has preceded him and people had flocked to him. Filling what was very likely a small house, probably fitting about 50 people crammed inside and then others were peering in from the outside. The roof of the houses at this time were reached from an outside staircase. So these men probably carried the paralyzed men, the paralyzed man up these stairs to the roof. And the roof of a single-story home in Capernaum was sturdy enough to walk on, um, but was made of branches and rushes that were laid across beams. 
um, and covered with dried mud. So thus the language of needing to dig through it. That's where that came from. And this digging likely caused debris and dirt and mud to fall down below. So this was likely quite the scene. There's a few slides to put up of a few different artwork um, that's depicting this scene. You just scroll through these four. Now this story is similar to healing stories that preceded it, um, where Jesus offers healing to someone in need and some that come later. But there are some parts of this story um, that Mark highlights to show even more about Jesus, that he's not just a great healer. So what I want to do today, there's a lot in this passage, like I feel like there isn't everything we look at in the, in the Bible, but I want to just look at five key elements of this gospel episode, and we'll go through them. So first I want to look at these friends. We have these friends of the paralyzed man. In verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. I like to think that these men are actually like Jessica Simmons from the beach in Florida who declared, these people are not dying today. With their actions of bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus, these friends have declared, our friend is not going to suffer anymore. Jesus is here in our town and could heal him. We're carrying him to the house right now. And so they do that. They carry him up to the roof and dig through the dirt and mud and lower him down below, much like the art depicts. And it's then remarkable in verse 5 that says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man. Wow. So perhaps the man was, who was paralyzed also had faith. But the plural there in that statement makes it clear that Jesus intervened in this man's life because of the faith of the friends of these other people. So we've got the friends. Then we have what I like to call the unexpected um, in this passage. So it's clear that these friends were bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus for physical healing. Jesus often heals in response to faith in Mark's gospel. And that is what the crowd and what the friends and probably even the man expected. Here are just a few other passages that'll be up um, where healing comes after faith. So in Mark 5, there's the record of the bleeding woman where Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In Mark 9, it's the healing of the boy with the unclean spirit. The dialogue between the, the boy's dad and Jesus. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So again, there's faith and then healing. And then another passage in Mark 10, the healing of the blind man named Bartimaeus. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And these are just some of the passages where this happens. And everyone is expecting something similar here, that Jesus will say, your faith, or in this case, the little twist, your friend's faith has healed you, Get up and walk. But that is not what Jesus says at all. 
He says when, Jesus, says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is ramping up the truth of who he is in this incident. This is unexpected and a huge statement for Jesus to make. And we see why immediately. Verse 6 and 7. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In Jewish religious culture, sins were to be atoned for by offerings in the temple. And Judaism taught that only God could forgive sins. But some Jews allowed, most Jews allowed, that some of God's representatives could speak on God's behalf. And the passive form of the verb here, your sins are forgiven, could be interpreted this way, some might say, but actually not so here, because Jesus was not a priest, no one had offered sacrifice, and these religious leaders had heard no basis for the pronouncement of forgiveness, not even a clear indication of repentance. So what's going on here? To the teachers of the law, Jesus is blaspheming because he has pronounced forgiveness. So third, we come to the key to this passage, the question that we are looking at today. Verse 8 and 9, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. So Jesus asked this question. He intends to challenge these teachers of the law with this question. So he's putting forth two pronouncements for comparison. To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Now, just a, an aside, in reality, neither of these two were easier since both were equally impossible for man, but at the same time, equally possible for God. But to those teachers of the law, it was easier to make the statement of forgiveness because no one could verify if it was fulfilled or not because there's no outward sign or signifier that forgiveness had occurred. But on the other hand, to say, get up and walk, could actually be proven or disproven. Saying get up and walk is the riskier or harder thing to say. You really put yourself out there when you say something like that because people will either, you'll either see the guy walk or not. And if he didn't, you'd look kind of foolish. So further, this is actually a classic rabbinic style of teaching of the time of a lesser to greater argument called, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but Kal Wahomer. So essentially, just a little, little Jewish um, lesson here, this rule says that what applies in a less important case, so the light or the lesser, will apply in a more important case, so the heavier greater. So there's numerous examples of this in the New Testament. Jesus uses this form of argument to clarify God's character um, as a heavenly father to his people. So in Matthew 7:11, which I don't have up, Jesus states, if you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So the lesser part of the argument comes first, okay? So even an evil father gives good gifts to his children. But so through this rule of Kalwa Homer, Jesus asserts 
that the greater is actually true, that God as Heavenly Father will give good gifts to his children. So stated a different way, the principle is that fathers give good gifts to their children. This principle is true in the lesser case of evil fathers. It's certainly true in the greater case of our Heavenly Father. So Jesus is ta- telling the people then that God has, um, he confirms God's good intentions towards those who are his children and encourages them to trust in his provision and care. So back to our passage today. So to these teachers of the law, it was easier to make the statement of forgiveness because no, no one could verify it that it was fulfilled. But to say get up and walk was um, able to be proven, thus harder to say. So in this rabbinic teaching style, the lesser part of the argument comes first, Say that your sins are forgiven, and then the greater comes second. Get up and walk, which is harder to say. So I don't know if that all makes sense. If your head is spinning, mine is too a little bit, so don't worry about it. I think it is hard to get our minds around it, but I just want to say that to kind of give an example of what Jesus is doing. And all that to say, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it can't be physically disproven. So this then brings us to the next verses of the passage. Um, So this is Jesus' kind of answer or response to his own question. In verse 10 to 11, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So this is the critical part of the story. Jesus both forgives the man and physically heals him. With the answer to his own question, Jesus is actually claiming his messianic authority and ability to forgive sins. The significance of this story is not merely that Jesus shows compassion, though he does, but the emphasis is on the forgiveness of sin, the root cause of all sickness and disease. In this act of forgiveness, Jesus was declaring the presence of God's kingdom to prove that he had the power to forgive. And as a sign of the kingdom, Jesus healed this paralyzed man. He proved that he could do what only God could do, forgive sin, proving that he was God too. So fifth, lastly, let's look closer at the element of forgiveness of sin in this passage. Now, the story of Jesus' life from infancy to ascension is dominated by the account of his mission to provide forgiveness. In Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph to tell him not to be afraid to take Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, as his wife. The angel said, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Talk about a meaningful name to give. Forgiveness was prominent in Jesus' ministry on earth. He taught about forgiveness. He granted it like we see in today's passage. Jesus really wanted these teachers of the law and everyone else there to know that he had authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the most important part of this story and shows that forgiveness of sin is actually our greatest need. We sure have other needs. I know I do. I'm sure that you do, that Jesus meets and heals in our lives. 
But the forgiveness of sin is the most important thing that Jesus offers you and offers me. But why? Because sin is bad. It's actually really bad. (laughs) I want to read a short passage from a little book I have called The Smell of Sin. Mm, Very descriptive title. In this book, Don Everts tackles the stark images and vivid pictures that Jesus paints throughout the Gospels when he talked about sin. He uses a lot, lot of imagery and similar language himself. But let me read a short section towards the end of the book where he's kind of ramping it up and wrapping things up. He says, the smell is bad. It's really bad. In the full view of scripture, the lies of sin shrivel up and want to slink back to the caves from whence they came. We might be tempted to laugh at them had they not deceived us so. But Jesus murders these lies with with an ugly gang of graphic facts. Jesus says sin is a deep insult. It chokes us and dizzies us and cruelly enslaves us. Sin makes a fragile, precarious thing out of our lives. Sin echoes in our lives, a deadly, toxic echo. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus, without apology, starkly describes for us this stench of sin. But there is one more point that Jesus was very clear about. This smell, that stench that smacks of death and slavery and insult, is coming from inside us. Sin is a sickness, and this sickness lives in our hearts. Not only is the smell of sin much worse than we ever really believed, the truly bad news is that this stench is coming from inside our deepest parts. We are not stained with sin near as much as we are infected by it. Oh, it's worse than we had ever thought. I think Everts is talking about how serious sin is. It infects us and leads to death. But there's a subtitle to this little book. The full title is The Smell of Sin and the Fresh Air of Grace. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us to rot in our sinfulness because Jesus offers forgiveness of sin as we see in today's passage. And we desperately need Jesus' forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin, the things that we do against God and against others in our lives, is the gracious act of God where believers are put into right relationship with God and transferred from spiritual death to spiritual life through the sacrifice of Jesus. And not only is forgiveness of sin what saves us from spiritual death, but it also benefits us in this life. Forgiveness of sin, fully understood and lived into, helps us as followers of Jesus live more fully Christian lives. The forgiven person is more motivated and able to live a holy life, which includes a growing trust for God, love for others, and heartfelt compliance with God's commands, not mere duty. When we are forgiven by God, our estrangement from God is broken and fellowship with the Lord is restored. And the Lord is waiting and willing to offer forgiveness to us when we come to him and call on him as our Lord and Savior. So what's remarkable to me is just how much happens and how much Jesus communicates about himself in this short passage we looked at today. He has declared that he has authority to forgive sins, and he stated that the faith of this man's friends is responsible for the man's forgiveness. 
So I want to circle back to these friends before we end today. Now, the friends in our passage, they did a lot to bring this man to Jesus. They risked embarrassing themselves, maybe looking foolish, cutting apart and digging through someone's roof. Who knows how that family felt about him, them destroying their roof. But you know what? I bet they actually could have cared less about what people thought as they got to witness a pretty amazing miracle and pronouncement of Jesus. Not only was their friend healed, what they were hoping beyond hope for, but his sins were forgiven. I bet they were glad that they didn't give in to any feelings of doubt like, should we really do this? What if Jesus doesn't heal him? That would be a lot of work for nothing, going across town. We'll let our friend down. We'll look really silly in front of everyone if this doesn't work. I'm sure they were extremely glad, though, that they got to be part of something so amazing and miraculous. Now, these friends, again, they remind me of Jessica Simmons in the beach rescue I mentioned at the beginning. These people are not drowning today. It's not happening. We are not, we're going to get them out, she said. I love the courage and the determination she showed, the risk that she took to save these people that she didn't even know. Very commendable. And these friends brought the man to Jesus for physical healing. But he received spiritual healing as well. We see this time and time again on the spring bake trips to New Orleans that Paul and I and Dave Carney take college students on each year. Christian students on campus and InterVarsity fellowships invite, including Clark and Assumption, and students who are here in other Worcester schools, invite their friends to come to New Orleans for a week of service and discussions about faith in Jesus. Most students come for the trip to New Orleans, the service element of the trip. But while they're there, some are transformed by the gospel that is preached. They come to do good to others, but end up being transformed by the Jesus who forgives sin. We've seen many students submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord on these trips or shortly thereafter. Like the man who came to Jesus for healing but found forgiveness, these students come for service but also come, also find forgiveness of sin in Jesus. Now again, in today's passage, the faith of these friends led to this man's forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins, which is our greatest need, is something that we can be a part of for our friends and family and others around us. When Jesus saw their faith, he said. The invitation today is to be like Jessica Simmons and the friends in this passage. Let's say to the Lord, my friends and my family are not gonna live another day without knowing Jesus and being forgiven of their sins. It's not happening. I'm going to bring them to Jesus. What if we lived like that? If we lived like these men in this passage? I want to invite the worship team to come back up. And while they do that, we'll just pause and pray together and have a brief just time of reflection together. So let me pray. Lord, we come before you today many of us aware of the weight of our sin and need for forgiveness. 
So if there's anything today that you would like us to confess to you, even as we sit here, um, bow to you, please bring that to mind. God, thank you that we can bring these things to you. Thank you that you take away our shame, that you offer us forgiveness, a fresh start. Thank you for the fresh air of grace that is possible because of your willingness to forgive us. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. And God, also just, if there is anyone that you would like to bring to our minds who we could bring to Jesus, please bring them to mind too. God, I thank you that not only do you offer us forgiveness, but you also offer us the opportunity to be the friends in this story, to bring our friends and family and others around us to you for healing and for forgiveness our greatest need of all and their greatest need of all. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time we've had together. God, would you continue to do the work that you're doing in our hearts and in the lives of our friends. In Jesus' name, amen.